Purple Insider is presented by Oakley. Express yourself, build a look that's made for you. When you wear Oakley, there really is more than meets the eye. Try it for yourself. Oakley is not only the best looking, but the best quality. So head on over to oakley.com for more information today. Welcome to another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here and returning to the show is Daniel Popper. He covers the Los Angeles Chargers for The Athletic. It has been a little while since uh, the Vikings play the Chargers and I got insanely lost inside of that stadium in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, I mean, you you need a GPS, you need a map. You need some sort of sniffing animal that can guide you to the press box. And out at late at night after the game in 2021, I went down thinking, oh, all press boxes, you have to leave by going down. So I was in the basement of the stadium, totally lost, looking for any human life. And then I realized you actually have to go to the top to leave. So there's my LA story. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing great. You named a bunch of things. The one thing you didn't name is somebody who'd been to the stadium before. That probably would have been pretty helpful. I could have been there for you. Yeah, so the the exit is on uh, floor six, which is because – and Alex, I actually have some insight here. So basically they built the stadium so close to LAX, the airport, that there was a cap on how high they could build the building. Where's my camera? There you go. And so they had to actually dig into the ground. So the field is below ground level so that the top of the stadium is not too high for the planes coming in. And so if you see it, if you're driving over there, if you're on one of the freeways and you can see it, the building is really not very high, but that's because they had to dig down. And so the ground level is actually the sixth floor of the building. So there you go. Which actually is cool. Like when you walk in the entrance and you're looking down at the stadium, which there are certain entrances to like Dodger stadium is kind of this way too. If you go in a certain way, you can go in and look down on the stadium. It's a really cool view. It is a really cool stadium. It's just that that was the most nightmarish experience getting in and out because I had never been there before. Uh, but this time you will get to be terrified on the road when the Los <laughs> Angeles chargers come to us bank stadium. Actually, Way easier to find entrance, walk in the media entrance, go up the elevator and you're there. So not too hard. But uh, this game should be very interesting, Daniel. I I, uh, am really intrigued by the Los Angeles Chargers this year. We'll get into kind of how things ended last year. But I feel like they've been a, well, that team's on the rise. They've got their young quarterback. Uh, And then last year was an expectations year, losing the way they did came up short, but now it's like really an expectations year. Would you agree with that uh, categorization of the chargers? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. This is a win or go home season for, for everybody in the organization. I mean, it has to happen this year. I mean, last year, I think the expectations were so high because of the investments they made in free agency. I mean, they, they were one of the most active teams in free agency going to get JC Jackson, um, you know, some more under the radar signings in Sebastian Joseph Day and Austin Johnson on the defensive line, but still paid those guys a lot, a lot of money as interior defensive linemen. They went out and signed Gerald Everett. Um, and so just with the amount of money they spent in free agency with 
Brandon Staley getting some of his guys in there defensively. You felt like, okay, the offense was going to be a top five unit with Herbert. The defense was going to be improved. They brought in Ryan Ficken, former Vikings coach, to be their special teams coordinator. They felt like that was going to lead to some improvement there. And so you, everyone was led to believe, like, yeah, this is this is the year that they're going to put it all together. And then they were more injured than any team, I think, in the history of the NFL. It was, like, absolutely shocking. I mean, they, and, and, and the quality of players that they lost, right? J.C. Jackson tears his patellar tendon. You're talking about their top corner. You're looking at all these premium positions, right? Rashawn Slater, left tackle out for the season in week three. Joey Bosa, edge rusher, missed the, basically the rest of the, of the regular season after tearing his groin in week three. Your right tackle, Trey Pipkins, is injured. Your center, uh, Corey Lindsley, who you guys are familiar with, obviously, in Minnesota from his time in Green Bay, had a knee injury and then, like, a severe bout of food poisoning that, honestly, you shouldn't even call food poisoning because it was so bad. It was like a bacterial infection that forced him to miss a game. I mean, you had injuries across the board, um, that really derailed this season for the Chargers. And yet, right, and yet they made it to the playoffs and had a 27 to nothing lead and weren't able to close it out. And so uh, the story of the regular season for me was the injuries. I think that's in terms of not meeting expectations, you can probably pin it on that. Um, even Justin Herbert himself had a rib injury and then tore his labrum late in the season. So you can really go ahead and listen to me. Keenan Allen and Mike Williams missed a ton of time. Keenan with a hamstring injury and Mike Williams. Um, you know, missed time during the middle of the season. There was a, there was a period late in the season where the, you know, him, the top three receivers had been on the field for 43 snaps. You know, Mike Williams had that high ankle sprain. And so like, you can sort of go down the list and, and be like, okay, I think the fact that they fought through those injuries and, and made it to the postseason was a real um, feather in their cap. Um, but, you know, obviously when a season ends that way, there's going to be a ton of disappointment surrounding the whole organization. Well, and somebody has to get canned when that happens, right? And that guy was uh, Joe Lombardi, the offensive coordinator, uh, and they hire Kellen Moore. Now, this is another person that uh, in Minnesota, quite familiar with Kellen Moore every time the Vikings played against him, put up an amazing offensive performance against the Vikings, which is not shocking considering their defenses the last couple of years. But in particular with Dallas uh, was nothing short of spectacular. But uh, it, was it being looked at as had they beaten Jacksonville, gone deeper in the playoffs, they would have stayed the course. Was it kind of reactionary or was it deserved? Because you mentioned all the injuries. And I think sometimes, you know, it can just be a product of what's on the field. At the same time, the internet really did not like their offensive system. Um, the, uh, the tape watchers always seem to know all, I guess, but it, it, I, I never, I never know, I guess, which one it is. Like, is it the players? Is it the plays? Because sometimes people watching the all 22 from the outside drawing conclusions don't always have the total picture. So I guess, how did you view that? Cause I saw a lot of criticism for the offensive system. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to sort of uh, live in, in hypotheticals, right? Because what happened happened, you know, the chargers went out in the second half with a 27 to seven lead and rushed for seven yards on seven carries in the second half of the football game. You know, like that happened and and that's somebody's fault. Now, I think you can see by how they've gone about this offseason whose fault they thought it was. I mean, they, they moved on from Joe Lombardi. What I do know is that, you know, Frank Smith was their uh, offensive line coach and run game coordinator. He got poached by Miami last offseason, and he was the guy that was really the brains behind their running game. He had a ton of respect inside that locker room. He leaves. They hire Brendan Nugent to be their offensive line coach, and they don't really elevate anybody into that run game coordinator role. And so um, there was a lack of emphasis on the run game in terms of the preparation and in terms of the coaching. 
And a lot of people within the organization pin that on Joe Lombardi. Um, and you're talking about like a lack of, of meeting together as a run game unit on a weekly basis, like things like that, things as simple as that, that just weren't happening. You know, the amount the, the, the amount of attention paid to run plays and the, t- and, the, and the specifics of run plays and how they were executed on the practice field and not, you know, repeating those plays over and over again until they're perfect and sort of just putting too much on the fact that you have Justin Herbert. Um, and so, you know, I think what Brandon Staley said after the season was that they, there's a higher level that they can get to offensively. I think a large part of that is the run game and how the run game sort of intersects with the pass game, the marriage of the run and the pass is Brandon's, the term Brandon Staley likes to use. And so it was the whole season. They, they struggled to run the ball effectively and efficiently all season long. And then when you get up in, in, in a game of that magnitude and you cannot run the ball to put the ball, put, put the game away in the second half, that was sort of the, the, the final straw, I would say. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, what led to the decision to, to move on from Joe Lombardi and, and it sort of worked out where, you know, Brandon Saley and Kellen Moore had crossed paths at um, joint practices earlier that season when the Cowboys came to town. They stayed in touch through the season. You know, they have a lot of respect for Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore was the offensive coordinator in Dallas for Brandon Staley's first game as a defensive coordinator with the Rams. So there's always been a lot of mutual respect there. And, and I think we've seen what Dallas has been able to do on the ground, you know, under Kellen Moore. That That's undeniable. And, and so I think that was like a big part of, of their decision to go with Kellen. It's so funny though, both of these teams where the razor's edge of you are going into the off season, totally disappointed looking for who to fire. And it goes for Dallas and for the chargers versus kick one field goal or something, you know, or, or, I mean, Hey, you know, Justin Herbert sort of, I remember in that game, sidearm to pass that went over somebody miss, yep miss keenan allen in the end zone yep cameron dicker had a had a field goal in the in the second half that he missed that would have put them up late in that game like there there were certainly opportunities and right you go down this this rabbit hole like okay you make it to the divisional round of the playoffs like are you really do you need to fire anybody like it's it, the margins are so slim and particularly in this league with how how few games there are every season you know and so but what happened happened right and, and ultimately you make decisions based off that. Right. I'm always so interested in this in sports in general, but especially football, because if it's a basketball game, there's so many shots, so many possessions that if say LeBron James gets stuffed on the final possession, no one's really going to remember that unless it was some sort of super notable, crazy play. But with football, the way these games go in the playoffs, with the whole universe watching, it becomes such a big thing when someone blows a lead or in Kellen Moore's case, when Dak Prescott runs the clock out on himself or for some reason they put Ezekiel Elliott in its center. I don't know why, Uh, (laughs) but like even though we can go back and there's a million different reasons, and this even goes for the Bills and Chiefs, the 13 seconds game in the playoffs, Mm. And I remember saying to a friend uh, last year uh, in Buffalo, like those things stick with people in, in organizations and with the Vikings fourth and eighth check down by Kirk cousins. These things stick with people. I think that that was a way of trying to clear that out, but have they, have they cleared out what happened to them blowing that lead to the Jaguars? We'll see. Right. Like I don't like that, that loss will stick with every player that was on that roster until, until this organization wins a Super Bowl, Like that's just the reality of it. 
you, you blow a 27 to nothing lead in the playoffs like that is that's that's going to be a part of your legacy forever until you hoist the Lombardi trophy. Now, there's two ways you can go. This can fuel the roster, which has remained almost entirely intact. It can fuel this roster to greater heights or it can be a dark cloud that never dissipates. And, and, and I won't, I certainly don't know what will happen until we see him on the field this season. I don't think the players even know because they can go up there and they can certainly say like this, this is, this is fuel. I never want this to happen again, but the proof is in the pudding, you know? And so we'll, we'll see, like, I honestly can't answer that question. I think the, the guys right now that we've talked to so far this offseason are saying the right things. I think they have the right players in that locker room in terms of, of guys that really care you know, and give a crap about all of that kind of stuff, legacy, the organization, winning, all of those types of things. Um, but we'll see, right? And like, there's certainly like, it, there is a human element to all of this. And I think all of us have gone through tough, tough, tough moments. And and I'm not perfect. I've certainly allowed tough moments to cascade and, and not bounce back and rebounded immediately. It's taken time. And that certainly could happen because all, the, all these guys are human, right? They're not bionic men who can just, you know, erase something like that and move on and be perfect. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a storybook ending where they turn this 27 to nothing deficit into a Lombardi trophy. Now, that would be a great narrative. I'd love to write that book, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I I guess the best example uh, is with the Seahawks and not handing it to Marshawn Lynch in the Super Bowl and how even though there were plenty of other chances to score and it wasn't, you know, just one play that even though they were still good after that, every time there were problems, every time there was friction that always seemed to crop up. Right. And I think that happened with the Vikings in blowing the NFC championship game, not in such tragic fashion, but completely no showing where there was just always this tension that it created. It created this expectation. Like you have to get farther than that. And every bump along the way is like, Oh man, this is the same team that melted down. Everyone will say it. You know, the TV people will say, well, this is the same team that melted down in the playoffs. They'll show the highlights every Sunday. You're showing that highlight of them, right? And I think that it can kind of seep in. And that's why the beginning of the season, Vikings Chargers, is a very interesting sort of inflection point for that team because it feels like they have to start off fast, which includes coming to a hostile U.S. Bank Stadium, because otherwise, right away, you're going to get like, oh, this team is not recovering from what they went through last year. Yeah, and the schedule gets really hard after their bye week. Like, they have to get off to a fast start. The other example, like, just because it popped into my mind, um, UVA being the first one seed to lose to a 16 seed, and the next year they won the title, right? So there's there's various, there's certainly examples of it, right? And like, I... You could argue that that loss to UMBC is more embarrassing than the Chargers pulling a 27 and nothing. I mean, I'm saying you could argue it. I'm not arguing it, but I'm saying you could. You could. And my brother went to UVA, so, you know, I think, like, I understand that that level of embarrassment. But you're, you're like, you're dead on in terms of what has to happen early on in this season because they go on the bye week. You're talking about after the bye week, they've got Dallas. They still have the Chiefs twice. They've got to play the Jets. They've got to play Detroit. They've got to play Green Bay, Baltimore, Patriots on the road. Buffalo, like you're talking about, and that's not even counting. Like, okay, what happens if Denver bounces back and is actually decent with with Sean Payton? Like, there's there are very few gimmies after that bye week in week five. Um, you know, I mean, the only one that you can really point to is Chicago at home. But like, 
you know, they could be dramatically improved this year. And, and, you know, in the NFL, you never know. So that, yeah, I think you're on it. I think it's a bit, very big game early in the season. Um, and we'll see like what kind of start they, they come out to, but like, I think that's a really good point And one that I hadn't really thought of, like that could, that unfortunately for them, 27 and nothing is going to be a storyline, not just this season and not just every time they falter this season, but until they win a Lombardi trophy. And if that never happens for, for Staley, for Tom Telesco, um, the, the head coach and GM for these players, then it's going to be something that sticks with them. And it's going to be something that these announcers are talking about that we're going to be asking about as reporters. It's just inevitable. That's what happens when you have a, like a catastrophic loss like that. And nobody knows better about catastrophic losses and the long-term ripples than this guy in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, that is like our thing. When you come in from Wisconsin into the state, it says catastrophic uh, losses uh, right there. Um, but, uh, you know, it is it, beyond this, beyond just bouncing back from that. This is a year where I think, of course, there's a ton of pressure on Brandon Staley. But there's a ton of pressure on the organization in general because they know that Justin Herbert is about to become very, very expensive. And there is a structure that Jalen Hurts has thrown us and even Josh Allen and Mahomes to some extent where they were able to stretch out a little longer when their quarterback is cheap. So it's a couple extra years from just, oh, he signs the contract but his cap hits don't go up for a couple extra seasons, but the window becomes very short. So here's my question. When you have Mahomes in this league and in your division, everyone is matched up against what Mahomes is. No one is Mahomes, but how, like what percentage of Mahomes is Justin Herbert, right? This is how we're going to have to grade everything because every time you see a chart, it's like Mahomes by a million and then everybody else. But how, like how close is that? So, okay, I, it's a tough question because Mahomes is such a unique player. And we, and we as sports media members overuse the word unique so much, but he is truly a unique player. Like I don't think there's anyone in the league that, that can improvise the way that he does in key, key moments. Like that's always what jumped out to me is like late in games, third and 20, he's scrambling for 21 yards with a minute 12 left, needing a touchdown. Like he's always going to make that play in the key moments. And I think right now, like physically, I think Justin Herbert and, and Patrick Mahomes are comparable. Um, the, the, the difference is like that just almost intangible ability to make the, the, plays that are necessary late in games by any means necessary. And that's where I, I have to see Justin Herbert take the next step. Now he's done it, but with, it feels like with Mahomes, it's every time it's like, he never, ever doesn't make the play with Justin. You've seen him do it. Like I, I I'll go back to that Raiders game uh, at the end of 2021, when he willed him back from 15 points down the last game of the season, if they tied both teams were getting in, and he, he completed like, you know, nine do or die throws in a row on fourth downs, including a fourth and 21 touchdown. That, you know, it was like, that, like you see it, it's in there. But, but to get to Mahomes' level, like you have to do it every single time. Hurt, not hurt, cold, hot, whatever the, the conditions are, whatever the circumstances are, you just get it done. Um, and, and that's where you have to see Justin Herbert take the next step because, you know, he did ultimately like 27 and nothing's on his resume as well as everyone else on the roster. Right. Um, so to answer your question, like 80 
4.7% of Patrick Mahomes. Like that's still pretty freaking good, you know, with the, with the potential to, to, with the ceiling to get, you know, closer into the nineties, you know, can you get to a hundred percent on them? Folks, our new sponsor, Oakley, maybe you've noticed it has taken our show to the next level. Oakley, express yourself and build a look that is made for you. And guess what? That's exactly what I did. Just got a new pair of matte black prism sapphire polar sunglasses from Oakley. And I got to say, they are a game changer. I'll be wearing them golfing, playing basketball, training camp. It is clear now that I have not been doing anywhere enough for my sunglasses game until now. Now, Oakley is changing the game, and it's time for you to discover a whole new world of possibilities. They are suited for everyday wear with frames and lenses, allowing for an extension of yourself, an expression of personality more than meets the eye. So make a sunglasses upgrade today at oakley.com. Personally, I am loving my new pair of Oakleys. They even offer prism lens technology. What the heck is that? It is a proprietary technology to Oakley and available for everyday settings as well. If you want to know more, and I know you do, head over to oakley.com and do your own research there. And while you're at it, get yourself a pair of everyday glasses as well that will change your look for the better. When you wear Oakley, there is more than meets the eye. Try it for yourself. I have worn a lot of sunglasses in my life, and I can assure you that Oakley is not only the best looking, but the best quality out there. Go to oakley.com for more information today. There, there are games where I have called him to just friends, Justin Kirkbert, because there are times where he plays like Kirk Cousins, where you know that, but with Kirk, he doesn't have the physical ability to make ungodly throws like Justin Herbert does. But that's like the joke is that, and, and I want to know how much you think this was Joe Lombardi, or if there, this is just something that he does. Because the reason that fourth and eight sticks out so much to everybody with the Vikings is that Justin Jefferson is running a route. And because the right move per se would be to check down in that spot, it's not the right move. Like the right move is to throw into double coverage. And that's just something that Kirk Cousins is not going to do. He's not going to go off schedule. He's not going to have some creative, insane Mahomes type of play. Um, and I think that that has always kind of held him back, but it's usually physical ability for him. It's not physical ability for Justin Herbert. So like, what, what is it to break the mold of those Kirk Burt moments or. Yeah. Cause he shouldn't be playing like a Garoppolo yeah. or like a golf or like a Kirk. Like he should be playing more closer to the Mahomes all the time. And yet it seems to fluctuate yeah. when he actually does that. I think, okay. I, I don't think it's crazy to, to draw comparisons. Um, I don't know if I would go as far as calling him Justin Kirkbert, but like there is, there is an element of that, right? Like where everyone is getting on the offensive coordinator and the play call for how much, how often he's checking the ball down to Austin Eckler. But then you have to ask yourself, well, how, how much of it is how fast of a processor Justin is um, and also how much of a perfectionist he is and always wanted to go to the right place with the football. And he does that a lot of the time. But sometimes he's such a fast processor that he'll get through his progression too quickly and then just hit the check down. And like, that might be the right decision, but if he holds onto it a little bit longer, maybe one of these great playmakers like Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are able to get open or he can take a chance downfield. He's not, and, and I've said this a number of times in a number of different places, like he is not Josh Allen in terms of how he plays the game mentally. 
right? Josh Allen is a gunslinger. Josh Allen is Philip Rivers. Josh Allen is Brett Favre, not from a physical standpoint, but from how you play the game. You know, Philip Rivers' approach was always like, if we win the game and I throw seven interceptions, like, dang nabbit, who cares, right? Like, that's that's Philip Rivers, and that's the same. And Philip Rivers idolized Brett Favre growing up in, in uh, you know, Decatur, Alabama, right? Like, so, like, that is not who Justin is. And that's the same way Josh Allen, right? Like, Josh Allen will, will, will put the ball in harm's way um, probably too much, right? That's not how Justin Herbert plays or wants to play. And so you're trying to nudge him, right, to be a little bit more aggressive, to be more comfortable putting the ball in harm's way. But you also – are always going to value a quarterback who protects the football. And that feels like the biggest difference to me between Kirk and Justin is that, yeah, they both probably get to their check down a lot, but Kirk throws a ton of picks and turns the ball over a lot. And Justin doesn't do that. Um, a lot of his, I mean, you can look at interception numbers, but if you're actually watching the games, like a lot of the interceptions are not his fault, but tip balls and things like that over the last two years. Um, he's not, and he rarely, rarely fumbles, like rarely, rarely, rarely fumbles. So he does an excellent job of protecting the ball. Now, some of that last year was just how many injuries they had at receiver as well. I mean, you lose Keenan Allen and Mike Williams and you don't really have anybody else in the roster. There's, there's nobody open. Like you have Michael Bandy and Deandre Carter. Um, you know, you also lost Jalen Guyton, your best speed threats. There really like, wasn't a lot of talent there at receiver. And so, a lot of the times it was like, well, no one's open at receiver. And my best offensive weapon right now is Austin Eckler. Let me just put the ball in his hands and see if he can make something happen after the catch, which like, I don't think is like a, a bad strategy. So, um, you know, I think that moving forward, um, you're going to see less of that if the receiving core can stay healthy. And that's sort of where I'm at with it. But, but that's also part of how he plays is that he is a perfectionist. He is going to get through his progressions quickly, and he is ultimately going to check the ball down a decent amount if, if that's what the defense is showing him. He's going to take it because that, that's just how he plays the game at quarterback. It's so funny that college can be such a hard indicator of what someone's going to be in the NFL. And yet with Herbert, it's sort of the same thing with college where a lot of people said, well, you know, it wasn't a good system at Oregon. And that's very true. It was kind of a disaster at Oregon. But there would be these moments where he could kind of take his team to the next level and it just didn't happen. And you're like, okay, well, there's always an excuse. There's always a like, well, he didn't have great receivers at Oregon and there's this or that. But and he had this spectacular skill and a lot of success. I mean, great numbers and everything else. But there was always like this little bit missing that I think has still been missing. But how much that changes with healthy or better receivers, which is what I want to ask you about with uh, Quentin Johnston. An interesting decision for them to go with Quentin Johnston because other receivers on the board, including Jordan Addison, who played right there in LA. I was really intrigued by Quentin Johnston because I think in a way, if Justin Herbert's going to check down, check down to this man, because he's going to run it for a touchdown. Like he is Debo Samuel ish with his ability after catch. I wonder how you think that his presence changes the dynamic a little bit with that offense. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's yards after the catch. That's the reason they drafted him. And I think like the framing of the pick was maybe a little bit wrong in the aftermath where people were like, oh, they need a deep field threat. And Quinton Johnston maybe isn't that deep field threat. He's not like a, like a burner speed guy. What he is is a savant after the catch. And he's like a freak after the catch. Like his ability, like you go watch some of his film, like his ability to shake defenders after the catch like in close quarters and then accelerate away from those defenders is impressive and so like that's what you're gonna have his rookie year it's gonna be slants 
and digs and just get him the ball, jet sweeps, get him the ball on the move and create after the catch. Cause that was a huge missing element for this receiving core last year. They were in the bottom half of the league in yards after catch per reception. That's not what Keenan Allen does. Keenan Allen at this stage of his career is money downs, you know, and, and, third and four to third and six, finding those soft spots and zones, using his route running, his savvy to get open. And then he's getting down. Like he's like, Keenan is not creating after the catch. And that's not really Mike Williams' game either. He's a jump ball down the field kind of guy. They've incorporated some more slants and stuff into his game, um, which I think has been super helpful in terms of her, him taking the next step as a player. Um, but he's not the, the best part of Mike's game is not yards after the catch. It's really his ability to make plays down the field and jump ball situations. And so your missing element there is a guy who can take a slant to the house like that, like, like your AJ Brown type, a guy, if you throw him the ball, you know, four to six yards down the field, there's a chance that he's going to score a touchdown. They just don't have that player. Gerald Everett did some good things after the catch last year, but you know, he's not uh, a threat, a home run threat on every on every possession and that's what they felt like they were missing and that's why they drafted quentin johnson was for that yards after the catch presence which i I think it it makes sense in terms of you know fitting into um into this receiving group yeah i was wondering if the vikings were going to be interested in him for the same reason just the yak but he is a little bit of a body catcher um but i feel like at worst when you have a player who's so good uh with the ball in his hands at worst, he can be like a Cordero Patterson or something where it's fine ways to get, get the guy the ball. And at best, as you mentioned, an A.J. Brown who drops a fair number of passes and can have stone hands a little bit and isn't the most graceful bringing in the ball and yet is just an absolute truck after he gets it. I think that this could be a huge factor for Justin Herbert. And I really think that what we see in the NFL more than ever is system and weapons are influencing a quarterback's numbers and a quarterback's success. If it's not Mahomes, because Mahomes makes Juju Smith-Schuster some big star, but everybody else, there's just so much impact from what the receivers can do and how you fit with their skill sets that I feel like we could be telling a slightly different story about Justin Herbert just based on what he has around him. Yeah, and I think the other part of it, too, is if Quentin Johnston was drafted by a team that needed him to come in and be a number two or number one receiver right away, that's a lot different. Like Jordan Addison with the Vikings coming in as a number two receiver, like that makes a lot of sense. Polished player and can be that guy right away. With the with the Chargers, he's coming in as maybe the third, possibly the fourth receiver. And so he has time to develop, which is what he needs because he's a raw prospect. But if he's coming in as your third or fourth receiver, right, and – in, in, in his rookie season. And you can just be like, run slants. That's your job. Run slants and create then. Okay, great. Like that's something that he can do. And then he has time to sort of develop into the player that they think he can be. So I think it's a really good situation for him. Um, just on Eric Kendricks, where he fits in. Uh, I think that when Brandon Staley was hired, there was the thought that he was the Vic Fangio reincarnated. He was supposed to be kind of the brilliant defensive mind to take this Chargers defense and make it what it was with the Rams. I don't know if it's been that uh, so far. The oh, J.C. No, Jackson. Yeah, no, it is not. It um, I was being polite. We're, I'm in Minnesota, okay? I wasn't going to say it. Uh, <laughs> That's a little too Minnesota good. nice. That's a little too Minnesota good, nice. But I'm not originally from Minnesota, so let me tell you. Pretty bad, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think Eric Kendricks can be a good fit there that he was not really a great fit with Ed Donatello. Let's talk some Eric Kendricks. Cause I, I, well, let me, let me, let me say this. I spent last week watching the Minnesota Vikings defense. All 22. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. I, I listen. I was happy to do it because I wanted to see what kind of player they were getting. Eric Kendricks. I want to apologize to all of your listeners because, good lord, good Four. lord, oh my god, what the hell was that? <laughs> like I, I got three Four. games in, and I was like, I don't even know if I can make a proper evaluation of how Eric Kendricks can play in coverage because I have. There were so many mistakes. Guys running around like chickens with their heads cut off. It was like you know, busted coverage is deep. Like it was, and I didn't, and I didn't even know, like watching the film, it's like hard to say like, okay, Eric Hendricks is out of position here, or he's trying to make up for all of the dysfunction that's happening behind him. Right. And so like, what happened, dude? Oh my God. What happened was, well, one Vic Fangio is the new McVeigh, where if you know Vic Fangio, then somehow you are Vic Fangio and your defense is going to be brilliant because Ed Donatel had the same thing. He was Fangio's defensive coordinator out in Denver. So I guess they thought he could do all the same stuff. The problem is that his system did not fit the Vikings skill sets at all. Mm. Like Eric Hendricks is kind of a hair on fire, man to man linebacker who can really do some special things, even if his speed is not what it used to be. There were times where he's one-on-one with wide receivers and he covers Mm. them like a corner. And Mm. if you're throwing a swing pass to a running back, he's going sideline to sideline to shut that down. The Vikings were consistently during his time, him and Anthony Barr, one of the best teams against running backs and tight ends. And last year they had him dropping in deep zones. Like he was Tampa. Every snap, man. It was every snap. It was him and Jordan Hicks dropping into the middle of the field and then like failing to pass off routes correctly. It was like, it, it was the same shell every time. It was like basically quarters every single time with the two linebackers underneath on every passing snap. Like I didn't, I don't, I watched three games. I don't think I saw a single time. Maybe there was one play against the lions where Kendricks carried swift on a wheel route. And that was like one of the only times where he was matched up one-on-one with a tight end or a running back. And he still can do that. That's the thing. It's like, I saw that play. And then there was one snap against the Eagles where he picked up A.J. Brown on a crosser, broken play, Hurts rolled out to his right, he carries him deep, and is able to force a pass breakup. I'm like, all right, he's still got it. Like, he's still got that. But I think the way they were playing just made absolutely no sense. And you could tell, because this happened in Staley's first season, too, where you just had miscommunications everywhere. And, you know, corner passes off a wheel route to the uh, – the slot corner passes off a wheel route to the outside corner. The outside corner, you know, doesn't carry it. Guy's wide open, or you're, you know, you have Quez Watkins running a, a go route that's not picked up correctly. Someone's jumping up. There's no one deep. It's yeah, that stuff happens in the scheme though, because it's a lot of communication. You know, it's a lot of, um, you know, pattern match. You're so you're basically seeing which route is winning, wh- running which direction off the line of scrimmage, and you're communicating and passing those things off. And so if you're not communicating both verbally and non-verbally to pass those routes off, it can look really, really ugly, which is what it looked like to me watching it back on film. Oh, that is an understatement, sir. Really, really ugly was uh, the entire year. And it never got better. Like, it never, never got better. In fact, it got worse because they had, you know, people banged up. And uh, Zedarius Smith wasn't the same. I think what that defense requires is super, super smart and excellent cornerbacks. And if Mm. you do not have that, then it's not good at all. But from the linebacker position specifically, it just was not, it was not anything Eric Hendricks had ever done before. And I remember asking Kendricks at locker clean out, like what happened with this defense? Like, why didn't you fit into it? And he was not interested in answering that question. And normally like 
Eric is one of the more affable people to deal with. And one of the, I mean, he'll be very insightful. He's incredibly intelligent. So for him to say nothing there was kind of like, okay, I got, I got the message. It was just a super bad fit. And I actually think that had he stayed not, it couldn't have happened with the salary cap situation. He would have been a much better fit for Brian Flores and what they want to do. So Brandon Staley, again, with the Fangio influence, has to make sure that he's using Eric Hendricks correctly because if he's doing this same stuff, he's going to probably get the same results. But I think that if you go back to what Eric Hendricks was doing before, which is just a lot of see ball, get ball, you know, you're covering this guy, go cover him, then he could be pretty successful there. Yeah. That so watching the film back on, on Kendricks, the one thing that jumped out to me is like he so I'm I met him in person before I watched his film. And so I met him in person. I'm like, this guy is a lot smaller than I thought he was. And I've seen him play live. He does not play like that size on the field. So when I saw him walk in for his press conference, I was like, oh my lord, like you play linebacker? And then you watch him on film, like he the one thing that he still does at a super high level is he plays super physically in the box against the run, not just against tight ends and fullbacks and running backs, but against offensive linemen. And I watched the Lions game and the Eagles game. Like there were a couple plays where Jason Kelly was pulling and he stood him up. And like, that's, you're talking about the best center in football, arguably the best center in football who has made a career off pulling and running over linebackers. There was a play against the Lions where Panay Sewell was um, pulling from right tackle all the way to the left side. And Eric Kendricks stood him up in the hole um, uh, another play where uh, Jonah Jackson, the, the left guard was, was climbing to the second level and Kendrick sheds him physically and goes and makes the play. Like he is still a really good run defender. Um, now I think there was some inconsistency last year, um, but like what he can still do is get to the line of scrimmage and in the box, be a super physical presence against the run, not just be in the right place, but then make plays and be physical against the offensive lineman when he's in those right spots. And so that, to me, is the biggest thing the Chargers were looking for. They let Drew Tranquil walk. Drew had an exceptional season. He um, rushed the passer at a really high level, played well in coverage, um, took over the green dot in week four, was a real leader and captain on that defense. But the one knock on his game is that while he's very smart and in the right place at the right time in terms of fitting the run, he doesn't necessarily always have the physicality to take on those blocks and be a difference maker uh, in terms of setting, you know, th- that line of scrimmage for the defense. Um, and that's what I think Eric Hendricks is going to bring. We'll see. I think whatever he has in coverage is going to be gravy, but I think what they're going to be asking him to do is exactly what you're saying. Go take on blocks and kill blocks at the line of scrimmage, which is something that from what I've seen, he can still do at a high level. Well, and this is why, because he was playing well against the run, I think he graded by PFF well against the run, that I didn't think washed as much as I thought horrendous fit for what they were yeah. doing last year. And was he hurt when, at all? Was he hurt at all? I don't think so. I, okay. I think it Nothing was just like, okay. entirely fit, because, but not the only one. I went through this list last year, and it was like, Jordan Hicks had his worst statistical year in coverage. Chandon Sullivan has his worst statistical year in coverage. Uh, Harrison Smith had his lowest PFF grade since the guy was like 20 something years old, 22 years old. I don't think it's a coincidence when a bunch of guys all have their worst season when it comes to coverage. Uh, I think that had a lot to do with the system. And that's why Ed Donatello is no longer here. Certainly feels like uh, they wasted a season because of it, um, Mm -hmm. because they probably should have just fired him in the middle of the year. But that's, uh, you know, that's several other podcasts from months ago. But how difficult of a defense do you think it is that the Vikings will be facing 
when they arrive in week three? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of it depends on what, what they're going to get out of Eric Kendricks. Like, th- like that to me is the linchpin of this defense because they're relying on a 31-year-old Eric Kendricks being not necessarily an all-pro player, but a really damn good player um, and elevating the guys around him because, they're you know, Kenneth Murray is going to be the starter next to him. Kenneth Murray is still a very inconsistent player uh, against the run and against the pass. And the Chargers didn't pick up his fifth-year option. He's a former first-round pick. Like, Eric Kendricks is going to have to elevate him. Um, and, and they're going to have to get something out of him. I think the big thing, the, the, the secondary is a bit of a concern for me. I think the front is great. You know, Joey Bost and Khalil Mack are healthy. They're going to be dynamic. Um, they drafted Tuli Tui Pulotu out of USC in the second round. Young, very young at 20 years old, but he has the type of power that they really needed in that third edge rusher spot behind those two guys. He's a guy who's going to play um, – like tough, rugged are the words that they like to use around the Chargers. Like that's just what he is. He's not like a super sound technician. He's not like a, an elite athlete, but he has a, does, just does a great job of getting around blocks by whatever means necessary. So I really like their edge rusher group. Um, and then, the, you know, the def- defensive line, they've got some depth there now. Sebastian Joseph Day, Austin Johnson's coming off a knee injury, but they're expecting him to be back. Tito Abania off a knee injury. They're expecting him to be back. They re-signed Morgan Fox. They took a defensive lineman, Scott Maylock, in the, the sixth round, they just signed Nick Williams, uh, former Bears and Giants defensive tackle. So they've got some depth there. The secondary is where I kind of have my concerns. Um, we'll see what happens with J.C. Jackson. He's definitely like ahead of schedule based on the injury that he suffered, a torn patellar tendon, which doesn't really happen that often. You know, the one that comes to mind is Victor Cruz, and he wasn't really the same player after that. But he's looked pretty good. Like he's out there doing defensive back drills, cutting, doesn't have a brace on the knee. Um, he's out there with a football, like doing legitimate football drills. And so um, if he's back, that creates a lot more depth. If he's not back, I have some concerns about what's going to happen at slot corner. Um, because if JC were to come back, you could potentially move Asante Samuel in there. And then you also have J- uh, Jasir Taylor, who was a rookie last year. Without JC, it's Asante and Michael Davis on the outside, Jasir at slot. Um, and, you know, that's a bit of a concern because Asante Samuel Jr. was – attacked a lot last year in the run game on the edge. That was a big issue with the Chargers run defense was Asante tackling on the outside. The Jaguars attacked him on that last fourth and two that closed out the game. Um, and Jasir Taylor had one good game last year against the Dolphins. Uh, other than that, I mean, he came in for Michael Davis in that Jaguars game and like wasn't really ready for that type of atmosphere at outside corner. He's probably better in the slot. Um, and then at safety, you know, Nasir Adderley retired. So Aloe Gilman's entering the starting lineup and they – did not bring in another safety. So JT Woods, who they drafted in the third round last year, is their uh, third safety. And, you know, I'm sort of, I don't, I don't know if you ever go through this, but I, like from what I've seen, I do not see a capable NFL safety. I just don't. Now, we haven't seen that much. You know, we saw him in training camp last year and we saw him in week 11 against the Cardinals. And he missed a tackle on DeAndre Hopkins and gave him a touchdown. He did not play again after that. Now, they might be seeing something different in practice. You know, I've tried to ask that question multiple times. Like, please tell me what you're seeing in practice that I, that, so I know why you guys have so much faith in this guy, but you're an injury away from JT Woods playing a lot of snaps. You know, one thing they can do is move Derwin James into the slot more often if they feel like Jasir Taylor is not ready for that. But that means JT Woods is playing a ton of snaps if Derwin's in the slot. So I'm really fascinated to see how they bring this thing together and, and how they sort of rotate things. I think the secondary could end up being a weakness this year just because of a lack of depth. Um, they have one roster spot left to, to add a depth piece there if they want to, but that's sort of my long winded breakdown of the defense right now. So I, you know, 
a lot of question marks and, and we'll see, you know, I think last year was really the year that I thought there was going to be a big jump this year. I think if they're like middle of the pack defense, then, um, then that's like very good. I would say. Yeah. I was going to say what I just heard there was 38 to 35 is going to be the score at us bank stadium. I think yeah. that's what I just heard that there's a lot of question marks. The same goes for the Vikings defense. And to your point, uh, as far as depth, one of the things that people always talk about is like, well, this team doesn't have a lot of depth. Almost nobody does. I mean, usually you go one layer down and it's like, these guys can't really play. There's, there's, there's like two teams that, teams. how many teams, how many teams have, have like a requisite amount of depth? It's probably the Niners and the Eagles. Yeah, probably. probably I mean, maybe like, like Cincinnati, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I have but even Buffalo, line wise, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like Buffalo last year, they lost uh, Poyer and Hyde. Those guys got banged up. Like, well, secondary isn't the same anymore. It, it yeah. never is. I mean, you get a couple yeah. injuries. Well, you saw this last year. You get a couple injuries, and you got guys that are barely uh, existing outside of the XFL. Just that's kind of the reality of the league. And, and I think that the coaches almost always, unless it's Mike Zimmer, try to spin toward, well, you know, we're happy with his progress, and we like what we see or whatever, but. I mean, most of the time they know that if you're playing that guy, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, so it sounds like shootout town uh, is going to be what we're in for. We'll see. I, One caveat, though, is that okay. down the stretch last season, the Chargers were playing as well as any defense in the league. And so I think a big storyline for me heading into the season is was that an aberration or was that this group of secondary players finally coalescing in this rather complex and difficult scheme to understand with all the stuff that we were talking about earlier and really like turning a corner. So like, were they turning a corner at the end of last season or, you know, was that just an aberration? I think that's really the question. Plus, can anyone tell if an AFC defense is any good when all of the AFC teams have great quarterbacks and week in and week out? It's I think when you look at that, like, well, they finished 16th. Like, if you finish 16th, but you're in the AFC, that's like finishing eighth in the NFC. Yeah. Where you should be a lot better. Like the Vikings finishing 27th is like finishing 45th in the NFC last year, considering who they played. Yeah. Um, last question for you. These franchises, in my mind like this they're like looking in the mirror mm. which which team would you rather be a fan of or like which fan base has had it worse because i think vikings always think that they've had it worse but i mean there's an interception of tom brady that if the guy goes down you win and maybe go to the super bowl there's a nate kading field goal i think is there a doug bryan field goal there's there's a lot of problems marlon mccree uh, fumble yeah you can go down the list yeah there, there's some things and then 27 nothing is going to be another thing that goes down in the lore which of the make the case have the chargers had it worse than the vikings historically well, let me ask you this question because I was going to ask you this earlier. What's worse, when your team blows the lead because they suck or your team loses because of a horrible blown call on a, on a pass interference? What's worse? Like as a fan, what is worse, knowing that your team did this because they're bad or knowing that they that they did this because the refs totally screwed the, the organization? Which one's worse? Because that's, yeah. that's, the, that's, the, that's the answer I would go with. Yeah, I think that uh, – well, I think, re I think getting screwed by the refs is worse because you feel so hopeless – or helpless, like we had, we did everything right and still lost. Uh, so there, there is that. But I mean, you blow a twenty-seven nothing lead. That's that is pretty rough. That yeah, I don't know. None of these things are easy. Like 
what's worse missing the field goal in the NFC championship or having your team move like uh, yeah. I don't know both of those <laughs> things seem pretty bad I think that's where that's where the argument both teams have had great successful superstar players hall of fame caliber I think Philip Rivers will be in the hall of fame at some point yeah. there's a you know LT everything else that whole run and you have all these great players that are like having Moss like having John Randall but Minnesota has always had the Vikings since the sixties, whereas the chargers in San Diego for a long time. And then they have their souls ripped out to move to uh, that beautiful stadium that I can't find my way out of. So uh, I think that that is worse because there are probably lifelong fans going back to the AFL when the chargers were a super fun AFL team way back in the day who uh, now have to grit their teeth if they still want to watch their team. There's no gut punch in the world like having your team move. I think that's fair. I, I would. I honestly would have to agree with that. But if you're talking about who, who would you rather root for moving forward, you know, I'm going to take Justin Herbert in that debate. No question about it. Yeah, whoever – well, it really depends on what happens next at quarterback for the Vikings, but I think that's, that's completely yeah. right. If you have the decade-long quarterback – and you're sure of that, like with Justin Herbert, yeah, you're in much better shape. Uh, how funny is it also that like teams ahead of the Chargers picked other people, <laughs> like, like Chase Young. I mean, what what are we doing, Washington? What are we doing? Picking, uh, oh, you know what? We could really use this pass rusher. We, ha- we don't have any quarterback at all, but, you know, whatever. So I think that is the solution. But there is a special circle of hell of you have a great quarterback, who can never quite get there. That's like the Dan Marino of you have this amazing quarterback that everyone loves for years and sets records and everything else, but it's not quite good enough to get over the top. And Mahomes like ruins your life there. there, That's that might be, well, I mean, that's kind of what happened with the Vikings with Aaron Rodgers for so long. Yeah. Well, that's what happened with Philip rivers too. Right. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Roethlisberger and Manning. I, yeah. And, and I mean, he made it to one AFC championship game in 2006 with a torn ACL and he never went back. That's the last time the Chargers were in the AFC Championship game. It was 2006. And that's what I mean. So the Vikings have this where they never have a stable quarterback situation. And every time they think they do, the guy rips his ACL or his career falls apart because of a knee injury. And then, like, you you, you almost are, like, in a perpetual Kirk where these last five years people have been very frustrated because they can only go so far with Cousins. But that's, like – the San Diego slash Los Angeles Chargers history is you can only go so far. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. I mean, listen, there's a lot of misery to go around. All right. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What are you, what are you, what are you, my mom used to always say this to me and my, my siblings. It's not a competition, you know? And it's not. <laughs> it's not a competition. Uh, I'm excited for this game, though, yeah. in um, several months. But uh, we'll get together again. and Absolutely. Uh, we got to do a real preview once we know who's actually healthy for these two teams for the game. Yeah, that's it. right. Exactly. And, um, cool. you know, I'll give you all the places to go in, in Minneapolis and all that. So your awesome. first trip to us bank stadium, but uh, until then follow him on Twitter. It's Daniel something popper, right? At Daniel L- R popper, Daniel R. R popper. Yeah. Okay. At Daniel, Daniel R. R popper on Twitter. Uh, one of the best NFL beat reporters in my opinion. So Great to have you on again, sir, and uh, we will do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.